Trigger warning, this reading contains stories of physical and emotional abuse towards children and adults. We will also discuss suicide. My name is Cece, and this is a story about abuse, motherhood, and learning to break free. This is not my story. This is a story I'll tell in my mother's words. Welcome to part four of reading my mother's handwritten composition notebooks. I want to thank everybody that made it through the last episode. I know it was a little bit difficult for me and probably for anybody to hear the actual voice of my father from the late 90s and his actual threats was a pretty disturbing thing. So I really appreciate you listening and making it through that. I would also like to acknowledge that It was difficult reading about my brother's suicidal ideation and his friends dying by suicide so young because although I know my brother had a lot of friends that died by suicide during his life, he too died by suicide five years after my mother died. In 2013, he killed himself. So pretty difficult, heavy topics that we're discussing, but I think that It's very empowering to just own them and tell them and to be able to tell my mother's story through her own words has been very cathartic. So thank you for listening. Here we go, part four. I must share with you, try to relay, the intensity of the pain that accompanied my struggle to break free. I really had intended that night of the Aaron Neville concert, the night that my abuser shoved the barrel of a gun into my mouth and threatened to blow my head off, to be the last night that he ever stepped foot into my house again. Yet it was not. The story is an entangled one, a story involving truly the worst night of my life, a story culminating in our being thrown back together yet again. First, however, let me address the excruciating pain that followed the night of the gun incident the purgatory that one must go through before heaven can be reached. I will never forget the torturous feelings that accompanied the uncoupling. I have told many women that I have never felt such pain, pure pain, a pain so enormous that it leaves no room for any other feeling. A few nights following the gun incident, my abuser phoned. Not surprisingly, he apologized, reminding me that he had been drinking, going on to stress, but you were drinking too. I stopped him with, It doesn't matter, even I have my limits. Probably sensing the indifference in my voice, the opposite of love is not hate, but dispassionate indifference, he immediately lunged into his best efforts, a bizarre mixture of sobbing, apologies, reminders of all that we had come through and that I could not just throw it all away. What about the youngest who loved him so much? These impassioned appeals to all that was good and nurturing in me were punctuated with name-calling that attacked my femininity and motherhood and my acceptability as a human being. He catastrophized the outcome of my son, insisting that the boy needed a father, someone to toughen him up and show him what it was like to be a man. He proceeded to betray confidences, revealing the contents of father-son talks. My head was spinning and I felt off balance and confused, a sure sign of verbal abuse and a very popular tactic of most verbal abusers. I hung up to put an end to the surreal attack. He called back immediately. He wasn't finished with me. 
but I did not answer the continued ringing. I knelt on the floor and slumped over, attempting to slow the physical and spiritual spinning, the chaotic overload. Though I knew intellectually that I was doing the right thing by finally and completely separating, my intellect and my emotions did not readily agree on my course of action. The ambiguous thoughts which were initiated by my emotions served to intensify the grief I felt. The reverberation pounded and compounded, my emotions appealing to my intellect to stop the pain. Make up, give in, forgive and forget one more time. I have been blessed with a very strong will, and I am able to accomplish whatever really matters to me. My intellect temporarily won, but not without raging, hand-to-hand combat with my emotions. I will never forget the course of the night when my emotions launched their most intense surprise attack. Having finally gone to sleep, I awakened in the very early morning hours, not long past midnight, 1.30 or 2 a.m. I awakened on the verge of vomiting, shaking and breathing rapidly. I do not recall dreaming. My first conscious thought was of complete and final separation from the only man that I had ever loved, the man that I had fallen in love with, the caring, handsome, loving father of my children. A life without any future good times with him in my life made me want to cry. I was experiencing the death of my dreams and hopes for us as a family, the death of us as a couple, and I was flooded and overwhelmed with a sense of void. Like I said, I have usually been able to attain whatever really matters to me. Our relationship had really mattered to me. I didn't want to give up. He had asked me times before not to give up on him, but I had to give up and I knew it. The pain that I then experienced was like no other. I was compelled to wake my older daughter, As I voiced to her then, through panicky gasps and a burning, bitter lump in my throat that caused the slow and surreal trickling of tears, and as I vividly recall now, the pain was so great, filled me so completely, that I felt like I would explode, splattering into little pieces all over the walls of my bedroom. Feeling every inch of my body, I felt swollen, bloated by the retention of pain and of longing. As the inner struggle raged on, emotion versus intellect, the hot trickle of tears turned into burning sobs. I'm in so much pain and I hurt so much, I shared with my daughter, who somehow understood. That night has been blazoned in my mind. My heart had broken, my dreams and identity had shattered. I had witnessed, I felt and felt a part of my soul die, a part of my spirit leave, as a section of my heart may die from extreme trauma of one sort of another. Such is the pain I try to relay to women who have been traumatically bonded to their husbands through emotional abuse. Their attempts to leave are sabotaged by that part of our human brain that flavors our thoughts with emotions. Our emotions, irrational and strong, only want the best for us and they fight to protect us. Lacking intellect, not knowing the source of our pleasure, is also the source of our pain. Leaving a person you love voluntarily, leaving because you intellectually know that that is what you must do if your spirit is to live, may well be the deepest hurt one can feel. As we tell our clients, you must feel the pain. You must stay with it and in it, and if you can stay with it, you will come out the other side a better person. I have witnessed this transformation. A part of me had to die to ensure the survival of my spirit, the essence of me. I'm a survivor. My spirit has survived the disorienting, dishumanification of verbal abuse and the stinging pain of voluntarily separating from the one I loved. A leaving I could liken to an emotional suicide. 
With the suicide, however, I was in control, and I knew intellectually that my spirit could be resurrected. My option was homicide of the spirit, an option in which I would relinquish control to the murderer of my soul. The murder, being in control, may have buried my spirit too deeply for anyone to find, may have kept it buried forever, controlling, always controlling, sapping any strength as my spirit struggled to resurrect. I have resurrected and I am me again, the happiest me I have been since childhood. That completes the first notebook. This next section is titled On Holidays and Special Occasions. Every holiday and special occasion is filled with the ambiguities of elation and dread, excited anticipation diluted by the assurance of a brewing explosion, not knowing when it will come nor why, but knowing positively that the intensity of pleasures shared will be negated by the abuser's equally intense attack. Attack on whom remains a mystery, probably even to the abuser, who searches for vulnerabilities. The weakest link in the family unit. Searches for signs of stress. A psyche lacking confidence or needing nourishment may well become the target of the day, the easiest prey, the quickest fix of power. Unfortunately, although any upset or verbal attack will dampen the spirit of the day, the best target for the abuser will often be the person being honored by the occasion. The guest of honor for the upcoming birthday dinner may end up humiliated and defeated, crying and not wanting to go, but being forced to go since that is what was planned. It may be even worse if others than family members are involved in the celebration. The victim may be further threatened into behaving in front of the others, protecting the secret of abuse, swallowing the shame and the hurt and the disappointment. The abuser himself will determine the success or failure of the victim to adequately hide the abuse du jour. Failure, of course, will result in further emotional torture, not only to the identified victim but to the family at large. The abuser will perceive and contend the victim to have to be the source of the once again ruined special occasion or holiday. A point I want to reiterate about the dynamics of these occasions is the worse the victim feels, the better the abuser feels, usually in direct proportion. The abuser gets his power from others. The amount of pain he perceives to have caused translated into the amount of power he perceives to have gained through the attack. I began getting more tense as holidays would approach and I noticed myself catering more to the abuser, treating him like a king, so to speak, striving to anticipate his wishes and tolerating more attitude from him. I had the feeling of walking on eggshells, tiptoeing around, expecting little, demanding nothing, and giving my all to him, to the exclusion of everything and everyone else, at best I could. I forwent my own needs, giving minimally to the children and catering to the abuser, hoping to make him feel so happy and so loved and in control, all needs met, and king of his home, so that the holidays would go well. I did not realize at the time that my actions and attitude toward the actions of my children had nothing whatsoever to do with his abuse. Everything could be going perfectly well, and out of the blue, he would launch a vicious attack on me or one of the children. After all, a surprise attack is an easy victory. It becomes clear, then, that it is never enough, no matter what one does, to build the abuser's self-esteem, to comfort him, to love him, to try to make him happy. Nothing will ever be enough. The actions of the wife and children are unrelated to the actions of the abuser. 
Nothing can prevent the abuse. Nothing will prevent the abuser from slashing one of his vulnerable family members when he or she least expects it. The worse he makes one of his children or wife feel, the better he will feel. He receives much pleasure from causing much pain to one of his supposed loved ones. It is thus easy to see how an abusive man can emotionally destroy his wife and children. The woman who once adored him, who was strong and beautiful, now begins to despise him as she begins to feel weak and ugly. A woman who once loved herself, her husband, and life itself begins to dislike herself, to become indifferent toward her husband, and to hate her life. The women and children will often become depressed and lifeless, performing poorly at work or at school. As with any depression, the children may become aggressive with others and or turn to drugs to escape. It appears to be common knowledge that abuse is passed from generation to generation, Children who experience direct verbal and physical violence from their parents, especially male children who were shamed by their fathers, were only intermittently protected and nurtured by their mothers, are likely to become verbally violent themselves. When these children do not receive support, acknowledgement from others that the abuse is wrong and unjustified, and or counseling within which to integrate the violence they experienced, they will very likely become abusers themselves. These children bury the pain, their very emotions, and become unfeeling and fail to develop the empathy that is necessary to prevent humans from treating other humans as objects on which to take out their frustrations and disappointments. Let me say that it is never too late for a person to change, to begin to experience emotions other than anger, the one emotion that abusers feel, all other emotions being interpreted as anger. However, the process of change for an adult abuser is an extremely difficult and lengthy one. As we know, knowledge of an existing problem constitutes the first step in the process of change. Most abusers do not know that they are abusers, especially when they have not yet needed to escalate into the realm of physical abuse and very short and probably inevitable step for maintaining control of their chosen victims. This next section is titled, On Passing from One Generation to the Next. Let me share how I saw abnormal feelings being passed from my husband to my child. As I said, I had a very happy childhood and did not experience abuse in my world. Summertime and Christmas time were my two favorites of the year, as we would travel back to my parents' hometown and share these seasons with grandparents, cousins, and aunts and uncles. I would re-enter my childhood world through, the, through high school, cherishing each re-entry and adding it to my repertoire of loving memories, which I call upon to date. My husband had come from a terroristic family, one in which verbal and physical violence were commonplace. His father demanded complete control over the family, resorting to any means necessary in order to maintain control. I met my husband shortly after his father had purchased some property about 10 acres in the country, on which to retire. The property was surrounded by a fence whose gate the father kept locked for the purpose of keeping others off as well as keeping his wife on. His wife was not allowed to leave the property without his permission, not even with her children, lest there be hell to pay upon her return. He would lock the gate behind him as he left in the truck or car so that she would be unable to leave in the remaining vehicle in his absence. The father, a big beefy German standing at six foot five inches, and the mother, a small Prussian woman about five foot four, produced four children, of which my husband was the youngest by ten years, and the smallest of the siblings, measuring about five foot eight inches and hovering around 170 pounds. 
My husband hated his father, as did the other two brothers and sister. For the four of them professed to feel sorry for their mother, who had attempted to divorce her abusive partner some ten years prior to my being introduced to the family. I'm not sure of the details, though I know he had refused to cooperate and threatened to counter-sue for adultery. My sister-in-law told me that she was in the hospital, having just delivered her only son at age 17 when her father burst into her room and told her to testify for him against her mother on the grounds of having an affair, should the mother continue to pursue the divorce. His daughter responded by telling him to leave. He didn't ask how she was, nor did he inquire about the baby, two statements that exemplify the self-centeredness and lack of empathy and other feelings, save anger, that define an abusive personality. Back to my example of how skewed feelings are passed to the next generation. Although Christmas time evoked an abundance of happy memories for me, the same was not true for my husband. For him, the season was crammed with tension and anxiety, disappointment and depression, last-minute shopping, to hell with the prices, with little thought given to the appropriateness of gifts, which were wrought with obligation and ill humor, the oxymoron of gift-giving. Being from very different backgrounds, my entire extended family would exchange gifts with one another, leaving no one out, whereas his immediate family would draw names so that each person received only one gift. My parents have always showered their children with gifts, fulfilling the majority of their wish lists, and that's a tradition I have carried to my own children. My husband rarely received anything he wished for. I'm not sure of exactly what happened surrounding the Christmas tree experience in my, in my husband's past, but I think the tree itself was significant somehow. I say this because during our entire marriage, from selection through decoration, the Christmas tree experience was a hellish one one in which the children would end up crying, not wanting to participate. As they got older, they would fabricate excuses or intentionally plan an activity with friends that gave them an out. So that the last few years that my husband and I were together, the whole experience was left to he and I and the baby, who was only now 11 years old. The youngest would cry also as her father would belittle her for not placing the big and little balls just so far apart or for her putting too many gold balls in the same area. It broke my heart and I, the buffer, would take up for them, telling him that it didn't matter and assuring the children that their decoration was beautiful and reminding everyone that the spirit of the tree was what mattered. The older two came to realize the spirit of the tree at our house felt bad and it represented pain and discord. I tried each year to pay more positive attention to my husband, tried to anticipate his needs and wishes, tried to build up his self-esteem, letting his hurtful comments toward me slide, putting up with more while expecting less. I tried harder each year to shield him from any unpleasantries like bills or bad grades, tried to handle everything myself, exposing to him, as I said before, only the sweet fruit of life. I did this in hopes of having a pleasant holiday season, each year hoping, praying, trying for the happy holiday that never materialized. When my husband finally did leave, he did so in mid-November backdating the divorce papers to October 7th as a special birthday present to me. That December, my older two children and I experienced the first good feelings at the tree selection and decoration that we could recall as a little family. Though I was going through much emotional pain at the time, the purchasing of the tree without argument, the working together to affix it to its stand, the merrily placing the balls any way we wanted felt wonderful to us. My youngest daughter, however, could not connect the happy feelings to the season. I know she missed her father, but that is not what I am referring to. 
She looked at the tree with anger from across the room and seeming to assume her father's role, proceeded to criticize each of us, our placements of size and color. An eerie energy seemed to enter the room as each of us simultaneously shuddered at the bitter presence of what we had assumed would be absent. The little one ran up to her room. I followed, nauseous and weak, to find her completely shrouded by her bedding and sobbing, scared and unconsolable. It was as though she wished to hide out only, not only from others, but also from the part of her father that appeared to be living inside of her. My heart bled for hers as she tried to put words to the automation that had overtaken her voice, her actions and reactions, and her emotions. I don't want to say those things, she sobbed. I don't want to feel like that. I just do, she confessed to me. I told her that I knew she missed her father, but she contradicted me. I'm glad he's not here. We're so much happier, she confided. I don't miss him. I'm scared that I'm acting like this. I don't want to act like this. I think it's a beautiful tree. We had let her pick it out, praising her for her excellent taste. I'm glad that she did not stuff her feelings. I'm consoled by the fact that she was able to be so open about her negative emotions and her fears. I told her that what she did, the way she behaved, was all she had ever known, the only way she had ever experienced a Christmas tree. She knew no other way of being in the situation. My daughter's intelligence and sensitivity and her closeness to each of us and her love for and trust in us made it possible to identify her skewed attitudes toward a situation that she would encounter yearly for the rest of her life. By voicing her fear and asking for help and understanding her reactions and emotions, my little daughter was able to integrate the bad feelings, putting them into perspective in her young mind. At her young age, I know that her intelligence played a major role in allowing her to comprehend, desire, and accept help so quickly. I think most children would need to be a bit older chronologically. A couple of other points I'd like to make. One, the tree that year was much smaller than we had had before. We were accustomed to having 12-foot trees that stretched toward our vaulted two-story ceiling. That year, we put the tree on the same table and in the same location as in previous years. Two, the following year we purchased an even smaller tree that we placed on the floor in another area of the house. A year without the abuser's physical presence made a tremendous difference in all of us. We unanimously and wholeheartedly agreed that that was the best Christmas that we had ever experienced. As my youngest excitedly lathered the tree with ornaments, we lathered her and one another with compliments of artistic design and spiritual fervor. Throughout the season, we all seemed to radiate well-being and goodwill. We had successfully reframed the holidays in ways that bespoke our true natures. We allowed one another to be ourselves, accepting and loving each unique individual that collectively defined our new little family, one that overflowed with love and acceptance, support and admiration. Within the course of the year, we had successfully rewritten the script of our family, a script congruent with our new true selves, our true spirits. I dread to think of the outcome of our little family, collectively and individually, had I not gathered the strength to separate, finally and completely, from our abuser. I am fairly certain that my youngest daughter would never have lived to experience the true spiritual wonder that the Christmas season can hold, a reality I foresaw for my older two children as well. One can thus clearly conceptualize the process through which aberrant notions of attachment are passed from one generation to the next, how needless pain, pain is taught and embedded into the human psyche. When individuals are the products of pain-laden environments where aberrant thinking and attitudes are the norm, 
They can come to accept a painful existence as the only way of living. The pursuit of happiness, an idea valued highly in a society that cherishes freedom, may bespeak elusive lip service, an unattainable ideal. Well, I have to say it is so interesting and wild to hear my mother recall my reactions to Christmas as a little kid. I mean, I don't really have a lot of memories from those times, but I do remember my mom giving me overflowing Christmas stockings filled with all my favorite candy. And as I got older, she kept this tradition by overfilling my stocking with patches from bands that I loved and different kinds of eyeliner and hair clips. She truly was a thoughtful and amazing gift giver. And I remember one time I was forced to have a supervised visit with my dad and I gave him a gift of a Christmas ornament that I had picked out for him. He was somehow offended by the gift and when my mother and I were leaving the visit, he had carefully staged the visual of my gift bag and the ornament I had given him to stick halfway out of the hallway trash can by the exit. So. I mean, I took it personally, and I don't really remember how my mother explained it to me, but it was a disgusting thing for him to do to throw away the gift I had just given him and make sure that I saw it on my way out. And I'm never going to forget that. But holidays are hard for everyone, and I know my mother understood how much I appreciated her during the holidays as I got older. And I always strive to be as good as a gift giver as she was. I'm grateful to have an amazing partner now, and we actually got engaged on a Christmas morning in 2019. And I have a really cute, tiny, hot pink Christmas tree my mother gifted to me when I lived in Los Angeles. That tree is still resurrected in my home every year that brings a little bit of her sparkle into my holiday season. It's sad to hear her account of my fear that those bitter pieces of my father lived inside of me, and that does remain one of my greatest fears to this day. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.